What's up, y'all? Welcome back to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. This episode is a bit long, longer, a little longer than we typically do, but to shorten it would have just not done the topic justice. And so I wanted to do a quick intro here, mostly to give you the title of the clinical practice guideline that we're discussing, and also just kind of shout out our, our two guests that we had on today. So our guests are Dr. Ellen Hilligus and Dr. Kathy Lukashevitz, and they were part of a three-person team that wrote the update to clinical practice guideline for physical therapist management of venous thromboembolism. So the title of the paper is Role of Physical Therapists in the Management of Individuals at Risk for or Diagnosed with Venous Thromboembolism. Evidence-Based Clinical Practice Guideline 2022. This is an update to a clinical practice guideline that Dr. Hillegas directed back in 2016. So I know, I don't even have to say it, I know you're going to enjoy listening to this episode because Dr. Hillegas, Dr. Lukashevis just really dropped a lot of knowledge for us and deserve huge thank yous and shout outs wherever we can get them for them, for all their time and effort that went into this this work. We will have a link to the paper in the show notes amongst a number of other links that we'll have in there for you to be able to access and learn a bit more in detail about what we discuss here. So without further ado, here's Johnny. This is the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. All right, welcome to another Owens Recovery Science Podcast. This is your host, Johnny Owens. Once again, I have my my main man, Kyle. He's got the beard of fear, but no hair up there, Kimbrel. Welcome, Kyle. <laughs> you can't have it on both ends. You got to one or the other. No. no, those are the worst humans in the world. The ones that have like full head of hair and then a full yeah, beard. Yeah, those are the ones I don't like jealous, those people. Yeah, I steer clear. They're weird. Well, Kyle, we have a, a very, I think, awesome and impactful podcast today. This is information that um, we've been wanting to get out for quite some time now. Um, and, and this is something yeah. anyone that works with patients in rehabilitation, from athletic trainers to PTs, if you're ortho sports, if you're neuro, if you're cardio palm, we all need to know this information. And so we're going to go over a um, clinical practice guideline that is a huge undertaking that our guests um, both worked on um, a- along with others. And, and they've said that uh, they probably will never do this again. It was it was so much work, <laughs> but this is a clinical practice guideline. It, it's actually been um, updated. This is a revision from 2016, I believe, um, 2016. So this is the most recent ones on, um, on basically blood clots. There's a lot of terminology. I want to make sure we get this terminology right. So VTE, DVT, but how we should, um, from the clinical side, look at dealing with blood clots in our in our patients. And for us in the blood flow restriction world, this is a question we get a ton. All the time. Um, all the time. It was funny. I was going to show you on my text because I got one from our friend Snay at HSS with a question about a patient um, that had a clot. And then I um, had one from one of the, the team folks this weekend with a player 
post-surgery who has one. So this is something that we, we get all the time. If you go to our courses, we have a whole section where we go over it. Um, and so I, we got the experts here today. I think we can clear this up. We got a lot of cool scales in this CPG that will tell us kind of, you know, what, you know, what scale you should use to, to look at how high risk people are, which is kind of a bummer, Kyle, because I was going through the scales. Like I'm already, you know, you look at these and you're like, if you're above two, you're at high risk. And I'm like almost old enough that I'm, I've already got one point on some of these almost, man. Oh no. And I, yeah. I know Kyle, Kyle, you, you've got at least a point just from being sedentary. Like every day is a transatlantic <laughs> flight for you. Yeah, it's <laughs> so, absolutely yeah. true. Yeah, I know. <laughs> these, these things are, are are really cool to look at though. So um, our first guest here, or, or one of our guests here is Dr. Kathleen Lukashevich. I nailed that. I nice. nailed it. I nailed it. Yes, I'm so I proud it. of you. Sounded great. She's been a, she's been a PT since 2004. Um, she did her doctoral studies at the College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, where she was American Heart Association pre-doctoral fellow. Um, and her PhD was in vascular biology and changes in endothelial, endothelial function associated with hypertension. Now she's at Marquette since 2012, where she teaches clinical pathology, pathophysiology, physiology of activity, and cardiopulmonary rehabilitation. Um, she does research with Dr. Sandra Hunter and Chris Sundberg, looking at vascular mechanisms of skeletal muscle fatigue in the both aging adult and patient with diabetes. And Kathleen, I didn't tell you this. We had a call with Dr. Hunter about two weeks ago. Going oh, over. nice. Yeah, yeah. So they have a massive uh, NIH-funded diabetes and blood flow restriction trial. Um, That's so, exactly right. I'm on that. Yeah. Story. And you're measuring like everything in the world. In the it is going to come <laughs> out with some really cool stuff. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's so it's on cleantrials.gov if anyone wants to see it um, and, and kind of get the scope of that study, but it looks fantastic. And obviously, she was a, um, one of the ones appointed by the APTA or with the APTA to come up with this clinical practice guideline. And then I have Dr. Ellen Hillegas. Um, so Dr. Hillegas is, is a legend in the field. She's a Catherine Worthington fellow in the APTA. If you don't know what that is, that means that's the highest honor that the APTA gives out to anyone in our profession. So congrats on that. Um, she um, is also faculty at the Department of Physical Therapy at South College in Atlanta. And she's, I looked at this site too. It's pretty cool. She has a company and she's the president and CEO of that does cardiopulmonary education. Um, so there's a lot of great information on there as well. Um, and as Dr. Hellergast, she did her entry-level PT at the University of Pennsylvania. So she's really smart. Um, and then she got a master's uh, in cardiopulmonary physiology at Emory. And then she's also really smart because she got her PhD at the University of Georgia. So she gets to actually root for a really good football team. Because I know Penn and, and Emory, you ain't, you ain't rooting for much more than lacrosse <laughs> at those schools. So go dogs. I guess. So anyways, you guys, um, thanks for so much for coming on. We've been trying to do this for quite some time. And so um, anything you wanted to add to your, your bios or your backstory before we get into this CPG? No, oh, that was great. Thank you so much for having us. We're excited to get the word out. Awesome. Yeah. Can thanks you... for inviting us. We, we are glad to be here and answer any well, questions and talk about our favorite topic, which is BTE. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and, and at, at the end of the paper, you know, there's a statement of saying this information needs to get out. And one of them was putting out podcasts. So I, I know y'all done with, with our buddy, Jimmy McKay. And now I'm glad we can help with this as well. So if, if the APTA is saying this is information needs to get out, I think, again, this is a, a good, impactful way to do it. So can you tell us 
kind of what a CPG is, um, kind of the background of those, what the undertaking is, is there a big expense to that, et cetera? Um, I'll jump in since this was my second. Um, I was the chair of the first one. Um, the APTA puts out a call for people who are interested in doing CPGs, and a lot of the academies uh, will put forth a group. Um, and they fund you very little. Um, I think the grant is $10,000 for the first go-round and $3,000 for a rewrite. And uh, which is nice. It covers, you know, a trip to the CSM. It covers your librarian and your your grad assistant, et cetera, et cetera, to help a lot of it. So you can't be expecting to be paid for doing this. Um, what a CPG does is to do a full systematic review of guidelines and articles um, to find the evidence, and then you grade the evidence. Um, on your specific key action statements um, to put forth a document to help people make decisions on how to treat these patients. And there was a huge interest way back to do VTE because so many acute care therapists were saying, when do we get a patient up who has a clot? So it wasn't so much the outpatient, way back it was the inpatient. When do we get a patient up you know, who has a clot and based on their medicine and you know, what do you do if a person does have a clot? So that's where this came from. And um, then we found so much literature the first time. I think we had over 100 guidelines and 4,000, 5,000 articles we reviewed the first go round that um, we had to limit it to just lower extremity DVT, the 2016 mm -hmm. guidelines. But we realized there was a huge need for pulmonary embolism, upper extremity, and uh, DVT, and also to really discuss the risk um, and how to assess risk. And so this second go round, we wanted to add all of that. And not a lot had changed in lower extremity DVT from what we found. Um, and so we were like, yay, <laughs> we, <laughs> we were right the first time. <laughs> Um, but B, we had to really get into the literature on risk, the literature on PE, and the literature on upper extremity DVT. So um, that's that's where it came from. That's how it's done. Um, the APTA supports this uh, through the practice department. Kathy, yeah, I don't know if you want to add on. The other thing I was going to jump in right at the beginner, beginning is for some of your listeners who might not be as familiar with the terminology so the original CPG was referred to the lower extremity deep vein thrombosis, DVT. Um, when you include upper extremity, you can refer to that as a DVT because it can be a deep vein thrombosis. But when it goes to the lungs, it's a pulmonary embolism. So then the inclusive term that includes all three of those is venous thromboembolism, VTE. So we've really moved to just generally referring to VTE because then you encompass all three, Everything. but you'll hear kind of us bounce around between DVT, which is a deep vein thrombosis, VTE, which would encompass all three, including a pulmonary embolism. And then there's a whole section that's really just specific to pulmonary embolism or PE. Just before we Very get cool. too far down, I didn't want any listeners to be yeah. um, confused on that terminology. Yeah, it's good. You know, as stupid ortho sports guys, we just say clot. I was just going to say <laughs> We can say clot, that's fine. We just all say clot. <laughs> Clot works too. That's fine. <laughs> well, and I, and I think, you know, 
it's cool because it's your world. You see this a lot more than we do, obviously, in patients and also in the literature. And, you know, in our world, ortho sports type thing and in, in military, you know, when we see one of these, we're like, oh, my God, don't do anything. Don't touch, don't touch them. them. So what I, <laughs> yeah. you know, our first time we talked with it, with you guys on this, it's, it's really interesting that mobility is is something that's that's super important here. And I, and I guess, Ellen, to, to build on the upper extremity piece. So we, we put out a, we called it a position stand, and I think they changed the name, on blood flow restriction with a bunch of people. And I was tasked with the safety section, and I had to cover VTE. And this was years ago. Yeah, yeah, I know. They put me on that one. Um, I'm like, can I have like muscle fizz or something? But man, for the upper extremity, I couldn't find hardly anything back then. You know, it was like, okay, if you've got a, you know, a pick line, you're at higher risk, uh, but it's it's like less than 10% or something back in the day. So I, I think it's great that you guys updated that. Um, but even your, you know, the, the strength of the evidence in the CPG for upper extremity isn't nearly what it is for the lower extremity. We had, I've, I've seen one upper extremity DVT and mm-hmm. it was a service member who had a pick line or central path. I don't know. Again, I'm dummy. He had a, he had a needle in him <laughs> up there. And so like serendipitously, they found it, I think just on some imaging that they were doing. And even for the medical team, it was like all hands off. No one really understood, you know, we were, it was like, Oh, it's so close to the lungs. <laughs> like, don't, don't do anything, you know, but I, it was, it was like really just hands off. So Again, kudos, and we're going to get deeper into what we think we can do with this. So let's go into, I'm sorry, Ellen, if you got something. I was just going to correct you that what we're finding is many more outpatient now, VTE, than inpatient. <laughs> the yeah, incidents, it seems that they go home and they come back in with the clots. Yeah. So I have to tell you, we are seeing it. So you should be concerned in the ortho sports world, because it's not just acute care. We see a lot more of these people go home after surgery earlier, um, inactivity, anything, and uh, they have an increased risk of clots now in the home. Yeah, the timeline and development of the clot was was interesting how far out it actually could be. Um, so we definitely have to that be aware falls of right it. into the outpatient lap. Yep. 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 So let's go into the Kyle. Uh, I was going to say, I mean, I think that, um, uh, oh goodness, I lost my train of thought there. Um, well, let me, let me back up. So then just cause we kind of mentioned it, but we didn't actually give the timeline. What would be the timeline post-operatively that an outpatient clinician should be mindful of this kind of keeping an eye? Well, on. I'm going to throw in there first, look for cancer history or cancer. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that totally throws your time frame off. Mm. All right. And then the other thing that throws it off is if they have any kind of coagulation disorder or any yeah. diagnosis that increases your risk for um, coagulation. And, and Kathy and I realized that there was a lot of this with COVID. The inflammatory mm-hmm. disorders have you, make you at higher risk for clots. So I think I'd look at anybody with any kind of inflammatory disorders and cancer differently than your regular just got out of the hospital or just finished surgery. Would you agree, Kathy? Yeah, absolutely. And then you also have to factor in your individual patient's level of mobility because the less mobile that patient is, just their their risk goes way up and then it's going to extend longer if they're not moving. Maybe in your patient population, you guys are getting more athletic and they're moving a lot, but that's the other X factor is on an individual level. How much are they moving after their surgery? 
That's the pathophysiology the for cancer is not just the cancer itself, but also even their treatments, right? Chemotherapy and things yes. like that. Exactly yeah. right. Okay. So they're a big whammy. And so they're, they're ones that, you know, as soon as I hear they go um, get inactive, you know, I'm, I get concerned right away. Yeah. Um, and even if they've had cancer in the past, so a post breast cancer, a couple of years later, I still am concerned about them. So, um, and that's what we need to be, just have this awareness. It's not that um, we go and have them treated, but we need to be aware and really try and evaluate um, how much at risk and do they possibly have one? Are they telling us symptoms that, that maybe we weren't relating to possibly a clot? Yeah. My wife went through breast cancer. That my head. That pinged my head about what I was thinking earlier. Oh, good. Um, Because I I think one of the things, you know, we had done a podcast on VTE prior because there was a a paper by Dr. Bond and um, Mm -hmm. Kyle Hackney and and those folks on VTE risk in in BFR. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we kind of built out our our clotting sort of education in our our course around Fearhoff's triad and all that. Um, And... Um, one of the things that I thought just really stood out to us was the range, because it could literally be there is a VTE and you have no idea that it's there to death. And that's this wide range. And so just kind of maybe some early screening questions like any history of cancer or inflammatory diseases or recent activity levels and that kind of thing seem pertinent to just kind of maybe throw up a yellow flag and say, hey, pay a little bit of extra attention to this individual kind of thing. Yeah, I know you guys talked to, we might go through key action statements, but this is yeah. our key action statement number two. So in a CPG, there's these statements that really guide your decision-making and all PTs for every patient, regardless if you're doing blood flow restriction, whatever your intervention, you should be assessing your patient's risk if they have a higher risk of VTE. So you put them in that different category in your mind and you have this heightened scrutiny of signs and symptoms that might be related so that you can find it earlier and provide the education to that patient on how they can prevent it on hydration and mobility and the importance of, you know, following their guidelines that they're given from their provider because they have this higher risk. Yeah. You guys want to touch base kind of on the pathophysiology of, of a DVT, um, you know, I mean, we don't have to get in the weeds here, but beer house triad and, and some of the things that do put people at risk. Yeah, I can talk about that. If that's okay, Ellen, unless you want to jump in. Yeah, go ahead. So if your blood vessels are healthy, the lining of our, the walls of our blood vessels um, actually produces a gas called nitric oxide and it produces prostacyclin and that keeps your blood flowing by. It keeps your coagulation factors from activating each other. Basically, if you took a bunch of coagulation factors and just put them next to each other, they'd end up knocking into each other and turning each other on and causing a blood clot, which we've all seen when, when you've bled and you, you know, blood is out on a counter, you'll, it'll instantly, not instantly, it will coagulate on its own. It doesn't need any other provocation. So the same is true in our blood. So we're designed to prevent that from happening. So things that you need to not have a clot is a healthy blood vessel wall that will keep all the cells in the middle It'll keep the coagulation factors from clotting and life should go on. The second thing that you need that's really important is you need that blood to constantly be flowing. 
when the blood stops flowing, which is probably a heightened interest to you guys with blood flow restriction, if mm -hmm. blood stops flowing, those coagulation factors end up getting more of an opportunity to knock into each other and bang into each other and accidentally turn each other on. And clotting is one of the very rare places in our physiology where we have a positive feedback loop, meaning once it starts, it just keeps going more and more and more. It's very, very rare in physiology. Almost everything is regulated by negative feedback. Our body's always trying to turn something off once we turn it on. So that makes these clots so prevalent in our patient populations. Because if there's anything that's making their blood vessels unhealthy, that's making the vasculature unhealthy, then you're more likely to get a clot. Anything that disrupts blood flow, so that's where immobility is a huge one. Because as soon as you stop moving, when you take your transatlantic flight, that blood is just sitting, especially in our very compliant veins, which are stretchy and can hold a lot of blood. And it gives the coagulation factors a chance to bump into each other. So Verkhaus triad has these three points. The two I've talked about so far is endothelial function, which is healthy blood vessels. Then um, keeping that blood flow moving, not having stasis, the absence of flow. And the third triangle is what um, Ellen keeps referring to, and that's hypercoagulability, that they have some underlying factor that makes their blood more coagulable. And it's like, if you have one of these points, you are at a higher risk for a clot. When you start getting multiple points of Verkhaus triad, you get it to be a really high risk patient. And I think a lot of times we'll talk about this and we mention the, the endothelium piece and people are just like, well, that's not my patient population, but just surgery alone can affect that. Stasis can affect that. Yes. You know, I, I dealt with a lot of soldiers with blast trauma and there was vascular damage on all of these individuals. It seemed like we, we actually did see quite a bit of clots with our with our blast trauma soldiers. Yeah. Patients, endothelial dysfunction is way too fancy of a term because it actually is incredibly common. It is the underlying factor of all of our cardiovascular risks. So if you have coronary artery disease, you have endothelial dysfunction. If you have peripheral arterial disease, you have massive endothelial dysfunction. Every patient with diabetes has endothelial dysfunction. So it's kind of a fancy word and maybe the patient population doesn't understand it, but this is what underlines so much of our cardiovascular disease is this is the first thing that goes. You lose endothelial function and then the waterfall happens into all the more common diseases. Cool, thanks. I was kind of curious, um, Kathy, I was reading a while, a while ago about just blood flow in general. And there was a statement about how as we age and our vessel walls get more atherosclerotic, that blood flow actually kind of gets more uniform. And I hadn't really thought about that, but then I, when I thought about it, I was like, okay, I guess maybe that makes sense because you have the compliance of the vessel walls. And so the pumping of the heart, maybe as blood flow moves through the oh, system. Oh, you're losing the variability? Yeah. And so I was wondering just, did you have any thoughts on how that might even just kind of play into maybe an increased likelihood of clotting as we age? Is it just the the function of how that blood flow actually just physically moves through the system. I don't think that it is um, that the blood flow becomes more universal. I'm wondering, I'm not sure what the context for that is because if, if we actually get a greater difference between systolic and diastolic as we age because our vessels become so stiff, it gets higher during systolic and then we like lose mm -hmm. pressure during diastole. And that's kind of a complicated reason why that happens, but um, it doesn't become 
more uniform. I'm wondering where, I'm not exactly sure, but the bigger factor is once, once you don't have that nitric oxide and you, even yeah. if you don't have atherosclerosis, you lose it as you age. It's one of the natural effects of aging in our blood vessels. So you can have endothelial dysfunction very early in life when you have a lot of cardiovascular risk factors, but we all are going to end up losing it as we age. I think that's the bigger factor. But I jump in here and say Please. that as you age, it depends on what you do with your aging. So if you're active and we've seen the, the aerobically active, we've seen less arterial stiffness and the least active are the ones we see more of the stiffness. And so we see these greater changes in diastolic and systolic pressure, and we see more um, damage done to the vessels. Um, so active individuals really you know, have less of the stiffness and they oftentimes may not need blood pressure controlling medications because their arteries aren't as stiff. And so, so that's another thing that happens with aging. I'm wondering if you're talking about laminar flow um, when you're talking about how it's smooth, but um, yeah. the problem is, is, I just don't know of that. So I'm not sure you're either. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about that. It was one of those moments where I was reading, I went, oh, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that, but I guess it kind of makes sense to me um, mechanistically. Yeah, I mean, but pathophysiologically, atherosclerosis leads to more turbulent blood flow, which is bad. So I'm not sure what hmm. avenue that article was in, but in general, atherosclerosis leads to increased turbulence and increased risk. Of We're just going to go with what I read was wrong. Okay. Or I <laughs> think uh, wrong. What, what? <laughs> Once again, uh, that's why we'll, I asked the questions. Maybe once not, again, we'll you know, edit out Kyle's piece here. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, could we go back real quick to what you were saying, Dr. Hillegas, about the as you age and what you do? I, we would, I, in my head, I would relate that to shear stress um, and nitric oxide release from the endothelial tissue and all that. See, see, now you're nodding your heads like, okay, Kyle might actually know this about, so I feel better about myself. No. He just needs a win. He needs a win now. This is a big <laughs> win. You mentioned seer stress. You got me. Go. Yeah. Yeah. So that would be, that would be basically why we're seeing an endothelial tissue more healthy as we age is at least a piece of the puzzle. A piece of it. Yeah. A big, huge part of it, and this just gets to the global health of exercise, is that exercise is anti-inflammatory. And we yeah. have circulating in our blood pro-inflammatory cytokines, which is one of the things that damages your endothelial cell layer. So when you exercise, it has an anti-inflammatory effect. And that's not just on like an inflamed ankle. That is what's circulating in your blood. It's a major connector of disease and cancer is the amount of like kind of chronic low-grade inflammation you have in your body and exercise counters that. Did you hear that, Kyle? Exercise. I'm, I'm doing some I'm doing That's some very calf important pumps to right exercise. Now. I'm doing some calf pumps. You just can't see right now. And that that'll that'll be our I don't think you're getting key. anti-inflammatory effects from a calf pump. I just oh come on. <laughs> your heart has to be beating a little bit. <laughs> Now you lost Kyle yeah. when you said heart beating too much. Um, I lost well, that that'll get in our key action statement. I think number one, but um, let's, let's just talk about presentation then. So I, I think we all, you know, basically I was in PT school. It's like, if it's big, swollen, you know, um, red hot. looks, looks red hot, then that's a clot. Um, and, but not beyond that, anything else you want to add to it, but you know, there's, there's this thing like every now and then we would, we would say, okay, it looks like there's a, we got a DBT in the lower below the knee and the medical team would be like, 
yeah, no big deal. Like, just go. And we're like, what? <laughs> you serious? I can put them on a leg rest type thing. And, and that's very different than something you might see more proximal. So can you go in that a little bit? Well, there is the incidence of below the knee DVT is uh, the incidence of it progressing to a PE is much less than a proximal. And so there, when you actually read the American College of Chess Physicians guidelines on this, as well as ours, there's this, you know, what do we do? So I, I even had a clinical case. I had a patient brought in who had a subarachnoid hemorrhage and he had a DVT, lower extremity DVT below the knee. And they said, what do you do? And I said, you're not going to put him on anticoagulation when you already have a bleed. So, move him. so the contraindication would be to keep him on bed rest because mobility helps with this anti-inflammatory effect and, and et cetera, and prevents other clots. So your big thing would be is what are you dealing with? Um, if you're dealing with a lower extremity below the knee um, and you're in the hospital and they're at a low activity level, they're probably going to treat it. But if you're talking about somebody who may have some risks for bleeding, they're probably not going to treat it. So actually, I think it's a, a grade two um, out of the American College of Chest Physicians about whether to treat it or not, as far as that goes. It's the proximal that is going to go to the lungs. And that's what we're concerned of. So um, in the thigh or further on up, more likely to float to the lungs, and they're likely to be larger. And therefore, yeah. plot off more of your um, lung tissue and be more of a risk for sudden death. And that's the big thing, hypoxemia leading to sudden death. So I think that's why, you know, down in the below the knee, it's they're smaller and there just isn't the incidence of those traveling to the lungs. Agree? I think that piece is going to blow people's mind right there, Dr. Hillegas, just the, you know, because well, I don't think capable. we got that education, you know? It's definitely capable of going to the lung. I mean, it's right. all one route. It's just yeah. one one yeah. superhighway, all going in the same direction. But it's this. I mean, yeah, the size is such a the biggest factor to yeah. me that that if it goes to the lung and you get a small PE. I mean, that's not a huge deal. The thing that we're all talking about is that you're worried your patient's going to get a PE and die, and that then right. you need a huge clot. And just the diameter of the veins in your lower leg is so much smaller than the diameter of your legs in your upper thigh. So that's the size. Yeah. And so even if they have that clot down in their leg, the other thing I'm doing is, is talking about symptoms in the lung. So if you happen to get any kind of shortness of breath, you feel dizzy, your heart's racing, um, you have trouble breathing, you get pain with inspiration in your chest, then you need to contact somebody. It's an emergent situation. So we're saying that not all of those below the knee aren't going to travel. If right, they happen to right. travel and you're symptomatic, make sure that you're yeah. responding to an emergent situation. It, the incidence of just below the knee in the general population, or, you know, we, we were going to do a total joint trial, a total knee trial with blood flow restriction in the DOD, and they wanted to screen every patient for DVT um, post-surgically and in, in our 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 surgeon who was the primary on it said, well, we would, our enrollment would be almost nothing if we looked at every potential DVT post, post-surgical in this population. Do you think there's a, a high incidence that it's just there and, and we just don't really even see it? If you were to just screen these people, has anyone ever done something like that with imaging? 
Oh, they were going to do, I was going to say, I was wondering yeah. what the screening tool was because they were just going to yeah. do a D-dimer pull. That's like a blood draw that can get a lot of false positives. So maybe they were worried about false positives. Ellen, maybe you could speak on that. I wouldn't assume that on imaging, you'd find a bunch of undiagnosed DVT, do you? Um, not that early. Yeah. We've been talking like a couple of days right after. Yeah. So Seems not odd. that early, but I've seen undiagnosed DVTs on um, compression ultrasound. And uh, a week later, they're symptomatic, really symptomatic. So, okay. um, and, and we say in our guidelines, if you're not getting any better in a week, even though you've been diagnosed negative, go back in because uh -huh. it's probably now going to show up. So it may have been there, but it wasn't showing up on the test. My personal belief is I think that PTs should be doing compression ultrasounds. I really? think we should learn and we should do it. And if you could get somebody to do that in your study, it would help your study. I feel like uh, that there's no reason why we shouldn't learn. And I believe that if we learned, we'd be saving a lot of these clots. I believe that we can get an instantaneous response instead of sending them off for the test and having them come back, however, a, a week later. And we could have changed mobility. We could have changed treatment. We could have changed you know, progression of their... Uh, mobility, if we could do it ourselves. So I know we're doing more and more diagnostic things. Um, I know, uh, I know colleagues of mine who are doing ultrasound, particularly the chest <coughs> part. I don't understand why we don't start pushing to do compression ultrasounds. That's awesome. Well, yeah, I think totally agree. Let's say we do see a patient that looks like they have a DVT. Can you take us through what the steps would be for diagnosis? So if well, you send them back to the medical side, DVT, they should have a compression ultrasound. Okay. So compression ultrasound is looking at the flow and then compressing the vein. And if there's a clot, that vein is not going to compress. And that's the big thing that that shows. So you can show flow, but then you want to compress to make sure that the vein collapses down. If the vein can't collapse down, it's got a clot in it. And okay. so that's much more diagnostic than waiting for a lab test for a D-dimer. Okay. And, and that would be your, your primary. If they're showing any symptoms, they may also want a CT scan of the lungs, but they may first just want to do the compression ultrasound. And that that's all that's low cost compared to doing a CT as well. And from the physical therapist standpoint, like if you're in the clinic and you come across that red swollen hot and you're trying to decide what to do next, that does lead into our key action statement. So if we look at our key action statement, um, I believe it's number five, when you see it, there are likelihood tools. The Wells criteria is a tool that you can do to kind of weed out because there are other causes of red hot legs. So the mm -hmm. Wells criteria is a systematic way of giving points to how, how many risks they have, what are the symptoms that they have, is there another diagnosis that's equally as likely and you actually get to take points away and if that score is high enough that it's likely it could be a clot, then that's exactly right. You want to send them on to a referral and then that's the path that they would get. Got it. And Let's... going along with that, Kathy. So the key thing is that other diagnosis. So another diagnosis could be post-surgical pain and right. swelling, right? And so that's one of those things that's very sticky. I mean, we see this a lot with bypass surgery and they take the saphenous vein. So another diagnosis is it's saphenous vein retrieval pain mm -hmm. and swelling. Mm. And that's a key thing, but you kind of get a gut feeling with these people. 
also yeah. mm-hmm. like they're very painful. It's not a normal pain post-op. That's where you start discriminating. And, and it's the, the clinical expert who's been working with a lot of knees and, and the knees get that much more than a hip would get it. Um, but working with these knees much more, you know, that they typically aren't that painful constantly every day, like the pain diminishes. Um, but it, when there's a clot, the pain isn't diminishing. The mobility isn't, isn't getting better. The swelling isn't getting any better. And, and it's not just the compression ultrasound. It's the clinical signs and symptoms to me that tells you, Hmm, this is probably a clot. And then it just brings in that earlier conversation of when you have the background of the high risk patient, your bells and whistles should be going off even faster, earlier, you know, more, more reactive when you start to have that gut feeling. And if you've are, if you've assessed their risk, then you know that your threshold for concern is so much lower. But I think once we get into the criteria, like the wells and things, we can, we can get that a little bit deeper and and maybe let people understand that. So I want to jump into the key action statements, but I think two other things that was new and interesting to me is is the symptoms or the things you might deal with post-clot, like PTS and, and CT, I don't know, you call it CTEF or CTEPH or something. <laughs> Do you know what, yeah, what that is and, and kind of. So actually there's there's very good in, information coming out about CTEF. So chronic thromboembolic, so CTE, pulmonary hypertension. So you have a, a hypertension in the pulmonary system due to chronic clots. And that's basically what CTEF is. And what they're showing is if they retrieve these PEs early and not leave the the clots in the lungs, they're seeing a lot less pulmonary hypertension from chronic clots, which is a good thing. So CTEF doesn't happen fast. It happens usually over months, a couple of months. And it's from having had PEs staying in the lungs, in the arteries, and arterioles and blocking flow causes an increased pressure, the hypertension. And then these people are short of breath with exertion all the time. How do you retrieve it? Uh, Clot retrieval, go in uh, surgically and do a thrombectomy. And so any of these higher uh, facilities that are dealing with a lot of this are doing surgical removal. Um, You can do, there are laser removals um, and just one that I'm familiar with is ECOS, E-K-O-S. And it's a laser that dissolves the clot in the lungs, but the thrombectomy actually goes in and takes the whole clot out. Um, And so there, that's the latest is really looking at, should we be keeping the clots in the lungs? Um, Should we be using catheters with lasers, or should we be doing thrombectomy? And um, there's still, you know, the American College of Chess Physicians does a lot of education on this. And a lot of the key players who are doing thrombectomies and, and laser are involved in the American College of Chess Physicians. These are pulmonary vascular physicians. And um, everything I hear from them is, you know, the clot is gone the better off the lungs are. And, and then, the, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was just gonna say the other one that you mentioned is the post-thrombotic syndrome, 
which oh, is another yeah. long-term complication. And I think it's really important that you brought this up, especially for your listeners who are in the more outpatient setting, because you guys have a really unique opportunity to have patients that maybe have gotten their clot diagnosed and they're on an anticoag. And it's really important that they take their medication all the way through to the end of when it's prescribed. Patients will often start to feel a little better. They don't like being on that med. It has some side effects, some things you have to give up, then they want to get off of it. People have this belief that that anticoagulation medication is going in and like dissolving the clot, but that's actually not what that drug does. It just stops your clot from getting any bigger and your body has to slowly break that clot down. But what will happen sometimes is your body doesn't break it down. It just scars it to the wall of the blood vessel. And now you've got a big old clot that's scarred to the wall of your blood vessel and you've diminished the size of that vein. So now you're gonna have venous insufficiency through that vein chronically and you're stuck mm. with it, post-thrombotic syndrome. So it's really important that when patients have a clot, they're getting the education on how important mobility is because mobility is gonna keep the blood going by and taking mm. those clot bits away as your body is dissolving it and staying on the anticoagulation medication through its duration that it was prescribed to decrease the risk of this post-thrombotic syndrome. And so when they are on anticoag and they get to a therapeutic level, and I, I, thanks for clarifying that, that it doesn't dissolve it. It just kind of keeps it from getting bigger. Mm -hmm. Is there any, any help of not letting it potentially dislodge when they're on an anticoag? Like it's almost like held in place better. I mean, that's, it's dislodging is what it always freaks us out. I mean, oh, is there see this thing like, yeah. yeah, it's like, ah, it's going to the lung now. Well, so let's start from the beginning. When you start taking that anticoagulant, that is not really working on the clot that's on the vessel. The, the anticoagulant is trying to prevent or break down the clots that are in the bloodstream at the time. So when we say within two or three hours, like three hours to five hours for Lovenox and two hours to three hours for the direct oral anticoagulants, you can get those patients up within, within those short periods of time because the drug is working and reaching a therapeutic level to dissolve clots in the blood. So that's the first action of the anticoagulant is to decrease the size of the floaters so that they don't cause a PE. Then the second job is to go after and stabilize the clot that's there in the leg or the arm to try and prevent it from, um, or, or kind of encapsulate it to, so that it doesn't break off and float. But the first role of the anticoagulant is to go after the floaters. Okay. And while that therapeutic um, anticoagulant is on board over the weeks, it's still preventing the floaters. So that's a good thing, no matter yeah. what they're doing. Yeah. The yeah, problem is if they don't take it, if they stop taking yes. it. Yes, it's interesting. Yeah. Compliance is such an issue. Man, if I had a clot, I would stay on that thing. I'd be like, can I be on it for a year? Mm. <laughs> well, I mean, you, it, there's, side effects to the medication yeah. and there's limitations and there is an increased risk of bleeding when you're on an anticoagulant. So it's not just popping a vitamin, you know, yeah. it is, it is a significant drug. There's reasons that patients want to get off of it, but it's really important to stay on. I would um, also say that our therapists, particularly the people you're, you're working with that are um, using BFR, that they also make sure that they look at their anticoagulant. And if there's 
a change uh, that the physician changes, like the first two weeks, they want them on a strong anticoagulant, and then they go to a weaker anticoagulant, that they make sure they know any changes in the patient's anticoagulation regimen. I have seen some orthopedic physicians order, um, they'll use a DOAC, a direct oral anticoagulant like Eliquis for the first two weeks. And then they assume that the patient is much more mobile. And so they decrease them after two weeks to like an aspirin regimen mm -hmm. and have that for a couple of weeks. I would make sure that anybody who's treating these patients knows that there's been a change in the anticoagulation and to also then watch them closer because sometimes some people aren't that active even after two weeks, although the physician is cutting back on the anticoagulation, they may still not be that active yes. and therefore they're still at risk. So um, I've seen more clots develop as a result of a change in the anticoagulation regimen. Really? Worries me. So I would highlight to all of those who are listening, make sure you follow any changes in medication and anticoagulation, especially if they switch them to aspirin and compare that to mobility. Well, I, I think from the orthopedic side, that's, that's somewhere they do like to go. So I'm part of metric, the major extremity trauma research consortium, and they just had this giant study come out in New England journal, you know, that's basically it was aspirin is, is just as good as, as heparin or, or, or some of the other ones. And then almost like the guideline, you know, metric puts these things out as like 11,000 patients. It's like almost pushes it type of thing. And that's, that's what I get from you know, a lot of the orthopedic surgeons sometimes post-surgically, especially if, if they're immobilized in lower leg is, you know, I want to get this guy on aspirin. What do you guys think about aspirin when they're doing blood flow restriction type of thing? So um, that, that's, that's an interesting point that you, you really got to keep your eye maybe on the, on the medication. The medication and the mobility. So if the mobility mm -hmm. is continually going up, the medication coming down makes sense. It's great. Yeah. But if the mobility is not like that, and if it's a slower increase in the mobility, such as maybe they're mobile when they come into therapy and that's it, you're talking about the other 23 hours, they're not that mobile. And then you encourage them, well, prop your leg up if it's swelling more. That's less <laughs> mobility. And yeah. those are the ones that clot. That's especially if you've cut down on the, the anticoagulation. So, and then you add the other comorbidities that they may have. So that's where right. we have to not just look at a protocol, but really look at the whole patient, look at the mobility piece, as well as the therapeutic regimen piece, and then the comorbidities. And, and you would look at just kind of their, their general trend of mobility, Ellen. I, I mean, I'm just in my head, I'm thinking, okay, can I quantify this somehow? Should I keep track of their daily step count or, you know, like a baseline number, but in your mind, it's more just like, make sure that general trend is up in a somewhat kind of significant way. When they come in, that's the first thing we, what have you been doing, you know, yeah. and, and um, have you noticed that you're increasing what you're able to do? Are you able to get up and around? And they're like, well, no, <laughs> you know, that's kind of mm -hmm. one of, uh-oh, <laughs> Yeah. and they decreased your anticoagulation, then I've got my radar out. And that's, yeah. that's where I'm seeing the problem is where the mobility is not keeping up with the therapeutic regimen. And that's yeah. not everything, but I'm going to tell you in your sports athletes, they probably are increasing yeah. as they had to get yeah. better. Yeah. But where I see, I see more of the older population 
And, you know, they're not jumping out of bed and racing around the house all day long after a total knee. And so they're propping it up more. And that's what you want to know is how much are they out of that chair versus in that chair? And our goal is to empower the PTs to be telling the patients that even telling them the story, like, oh, I just saw your doctor lowered your medication. Does that, do you know that that means that you actually have to increase mobility now this, you know, getting the patients that information, drawing that connection for them. Cause I think patients might hear, I decreased my drug. That means I'm all better. So I can even maybe sit around less. I have to do less of that preventative stuff, but it's actually the opposite. So we have that, we have the ear of the patient for much longer on a higher frequency and to be able to draw that connection would be really powerful. Yeah, that's solid. I like that. And watch that gate. So if that, if it's hurting a little more when they lower the anticoagulation and their gates off a little bit more, that's another red flag. Mm. You know, they're, they're, they're putting less weight on that leg. Why it hurts. So that that's one of those, okay, let's get this checked out because it just doesn't make sense. They should be getting better. And I promise I'm getting into the key action statements, but this is, this is all too good. But <laughs> the, the typical regimen to be on anticoags, you know, I think you guys put in there, it's like three to six months. Is, is there kind of like a standard regimen? Typically three months, unless with PE, it may be longer. And okay. then also if they have a history mm-hmm. of DBT, then they sometimes are looking at longer. And um, it, it's very interesting because you see some of this also going on with our cardiac fellows, um, the ones that have uh, balloon angioplasty and stents, they used to be on it a year. Now, some of the docs are saying, you know, let's keep you on it forever. Really? Um, so, so clots don't go away if you have a risk for it. Um, you know, as far as that goes, if, if your risk still stays high, such as, you know, cancer risk, they may be keeping you on aspirin for the rest of your life or um, something less intensive than the normal dose of some of the anticoagulants. And that's, that's what we're hearing out of the American College of Chest Physicians. Those that have had a previous um, non-provoked um, PE, which means non-provoked wasn't because of surgery or it just kind of happened. Um, those are the ones that they're thinking maybe we should be longer than three months. Mm-hmm. So in your patient populations where you're really seeing this post-surgical, that's where that three to six months is really appropriate. And it's yeah. all the kind of unprovoked, you got the clot because you have risk factors outside of a surgery. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Key action statement. Number one, advocate for a <laughs> culture of mobility and physical activity. You kind of touched on this earlier already, Kathleen, but you want to highlight anything there? Nope. And that one was a mainstay in the first key or the first CPG and it stays around and it's just an important call to arms for all PTs. This is something we should be talking about, explaining the importance of mobility, relating it to risk factors such as developing a blood clot. Perfect. And there's Number strong two. evidence to support that. This yes. is very well supported. I'm glad you mentioned <laughs> that now, Kyle, because we're going through these. This is one of the biggest questions that we got when we present this data is I think for whatever reason, um, some people like to skip over that part about the evidence quality. They read the key action statement and then they're like, this is the goal, you know, this is the law now, law of the land that you yes. said this. Especially yeah. as we get down, especially we get into upper extremity, you'll see that some of this is just expert opinion because the studies yeah. haven't been done. So if anyone out there are researchers, when you start seeing this expert opinion, these would be great research studies for the future. But yes, this yeah. key action statement is well supported with the evidence. Yeah. <laughs> 
Mobility yeah, is like, good. The most obvious thing. Hopefully yeah. It, anyone in our profession that doesn't yeah. go with this one or has a problem with it, we have a yeah. problem with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So can I throw one thing out? So um, this has to do also with prevention. Um, the one thing that really bothers me are these knee skates that you have. Oh. Uh-huh. Think of the mobility of the blood flow and on those knee. Uh, I've never thought about that. Oh That's my funny. goodness. I always thought they were so cool. What's it called? I go crazy every time I see one. I'm thinking, do you realize the amount of flow that you're restricting? Wow, never you on that knee skate with a with a bent knee, which is even worse, probably. Yeah, Yeah, researchers out there who are listening, do a a study to see the rate of clots and people using those because it's very scary to me. Very scary to me. Is you know, that calf um, just sitting? Yeah, just sit yeah. talk about restricted blood flow. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting that we had um, so a large portion of our service members um, going through limb salvage were in external fixators, and we made it even worse because we wanted them to be able to run and walk and jump in these external fixators. So we locked their ankle in place with a foot plate with a little sole on the bottom. And so they would have basically almost like a fixate. It was a fixated ankle all the way up to just below the knee in these fixators, sometimes for like two years. But they're um, running you, and mo- mobile. They can move, but they're below the leg. Nothing's really right. moving so at all. They're losing the skeletal muscle pump, but they still yeah. have the cardiovascular yeah, flushing the cardiovascular with piece. the increased we, we, pumping. But And most of them weren't on any sort of anticoag, as, as far as I remember. Um, but we never had a PE you know, thank God in, in any of those individuals, but it, but it was always kind of interesting to me that um, we weren't having to worry more about these people with this fixated lower leg that, mm-hmm. that didn't get to have a pump at all. Some of these guys even have a calf left, you know, so they couldn't even mm-hmm. pump. So um, maybe must have been a circulatory effect of the exercise. Yeah, I think. yeah just as just moving as, they were. moving as much as they could. Yeah, and being yeah. young. And being right. young. Yeah. Number two is a big one. Assess for risk of VTE with reduced mobility. So I, I think this one, we can really get into some, some of the weeds here. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So this is, um, you know, an important step to actually take the time to see what their risk factors are. And the original um, CPG kind of listed a bunch of assessment tools. And we made recommendations in this CPG in order to streamline the process for therapists and give them a recommendation that would work well. Um, But they're all, they're not, they're not bad. It's not like other ones are bad. We just picked some that were good. Anything that your facility is doing, if it's already in place, just keep using it. If you're not assessing risk, then here's some recommendations that you can use to determine how, how, how high is your patient's risk. And then we can move right into key action statement three, because we've talked about it a bunch, but we found it so important to go one step further for those patients who are at a heightened risk of developing a clot. And those are your patients with cancer, um, coagulatory disorders, genetic causes of hypercoagulability, that if they have those, just that's the whole extra statement was mainly just to hit people over the head with, please, please think about their risk. Those are for these high, people. high risk. Yeah. 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 And so you guys recommend the Padua. If I said that right. Yep. Yeah. Padua. Yeah. That's how I pronounce it. Yeah. Um, That's the recommended scale. um, And it's a good one. It's easy to administer. Um, It's been validated, but there's nothing wrong with going with a different risk assessment 
tool if your facility is already using it and it's in place. But if you're looking for a good one, the Padua is what we went with our recommendation. And you can get to high risk pretty quick. I mean, exactly right. If you hit four, you're at high risk. If you have active cancer, you're already three. Yeah. Um, post-surgicals. I mean, I think you're at what, two, if you're post-surgical. Yep. So um, yeah, these, these folks that we see might be higher risk than, than we actually really give them credit for. And yeah. I think it's important on that, on that key action statement to define reduced mobility, which at least the Padua says at least three days. Mm-hmm. three days essentially bed rest so right so we're not just talking about someone who has yeah like a not an active lifestyle but right. truly immobile yeah right and if they've had a previous vte i mean it's it's such high risk as well that's something that we we really need to be aware of already yeah. three mm-hmm. really really important question to ask any patient have you had a history of a vte or a deep vein thrombosis or clot as you know the language might be more as we <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah. And I, and I want to throw in real quick, you know, because people probably don't want to just fast forward to the podcast every time they have a patient to remember what the scales are. Um, you guys, this is an open access journal. Am I right? Yes. Yeah. So it's open access. So everyone can, can easily get the journal. And then you do have a, basically like a booklet that, that we can. Yeah. Get. We have a pocket guide, which is a very, it's some, it's like a pamphlet in digital form, which is all the bullet points, it lists the key action statements, and it has the individual tables for each of these assessment tools. So you don't have to go paging through the, I don't know, 30 page document or however long it ended up being. Um, But they're all right there for you. So yep, so you see key action statement, here's the recommendation. And in that pamphlet are all these, um, these tools right there for you. And I'm afraid to mention it, but there's also an app that's that's still it's in progress and in, in, progress. in progress. <laughs> it works. It's in development. <laughs> but there will be potentially just an easy app that our folks can pull up real quick. Okay, I need the Padua scale to see how high risk this person is. Okay. Exactly. Well, and currently so, the app exists, but it's just not as user friendly as you would like. So that's the goal for that app is to make it a little bit more user-friendly. Right now, it pretty much just has the key action statements in it. Okay. So two, I'll, I'll link and, to all this stuff in the show notes, Johnny. Yeah. I'll, I'll put it up. Yeah. So two and three is basically assessing for risk. And also these really high-risk people hit you over the head. Number three, be, be spider senses up for them. Yep. Number four, provide preventative measures for those at high risk for VTE. So what is that? Yeah, so that's um, a big, huge piece of it is just education, letting them know why they're at a high risk, what it means to be at risk, and what are the implications of having a clot. And I would encourage people to go beyond just a clot can lead to a pulmonary embolism and talk about that these chronic effects, because this because something that's not just if you survive the clot, everything's a-okay. So letting patients know why you're talking to them, why the why these factors that you're going to recommend are so important, but then linking that risk to having an increased mobility because mobility will be the anti-clot. That's the best way we can do it because we keep blood flow washing away and we keep washing away those coagulation factors, staying really well hydrated. So you're post-surgical, you have a higher risk, keeping your hydration up is really important so that your blood elements are in more water than they're not crowded together, banging into each other. Um, you can use mechanical compression. So we do have those patients where mobility is not available and they do have to spend more time. Well, then using mechanical compression is basically a way of cheating the system and creating a, a fake skeletal muscle pump, pushing from the outside. The goal is the exact same as mobility. 
We're just trying to increase blood flow and flush out coagulation factors. So if they're getting up and getting moving, that's the best thing. But then mechanical compression is on the back end of that if you can't move as well. Or in the interim, when you're on the couch and you're you know propping it up, you can put compression on. Um, and then you can always refer to a medical treatment if you have further concerns for your patient. And I'd also throw in here, this is really good information for pre-rehab. So before they have oh, this great point. Make sure that you um, you know why you have to get up after your surgery. You've got to get up. You've got to drink. You've got to do leg exercises, those kind of things to make sure you don't get a clot. So it's a way to also talk to them before the actual surgery. So it would be great if you're working with these people and then you know that they're going to have surgery or some kind of limit limited mobility, um, even long trip travel. Um, these are key things to to help the individual understand so they can prevent getting a clot. Right. Yeah. The hydration piece is, it makes so much sense, but I don't think that's something I ever discuss with yeah. my patients, you know, in, in this acute type setting. So that's, that's awesome. And then so, the human mm -hmm. element is if you are in pain and it hurts to walk and you have to keep going to the bathroom, what's the first thing you're going to do? You're going to stop drinking water. Cause you're like, I don't want to go to the bathroom fun. six times. Yeah. It's a pain in the butt yeah. to get off the couch. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So drinking water is really important. Number five, the big one here is, and again, that was high quality um, studies on, on the last statement. Number five yep. is establish the likelihood of a DVT when you think that patient has symptoms. And this is where the Wells criteria comes in. Yep, exactly right. And this is very strongly supported in the literature. This didn't budge since the original CPG. Everything just further supports the Wells criteria is the best way to go when you encounter the red swollen hot limb or body part and you're suspecting a DVT, take the time to do the Wells. It's, it's highly validated. It's very short. It's a simple, you're looking at their risk factors basically and the symptoms that you're seeing. And this is the one where we talked about an alternative diagnosis reduces the score. Um, so that kind of gives you your, you know, your, your clinical gut feel gets in there when you're like, I really think this is just popliteal inflammation from X, Y, or Z, but take the time to actually score it out. If the score is high enough, that's when they would go on to get a referral and they would do the follow-up assessment to actually determine if there's a clot. I think that's a, 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 an important distinction here is the wells is really, if you think the person has exactly BTE, right. Yeah. They have, they have symptoms, they have things versus the other ones that we discussed, the Padua and there's the Caprini and some of the others that are more an assessment of risk for developing. Exactly right. The document kind of moves from how mobility isn't generally good to who's at risk. And then these likelihood assessments, it's just that how likely is it that they will get a clot? Now we've moved into the place where we're talking about the patient who looks like they have the clot. Yeah. So this is the swollen post-surgery leg and you're like, oh my goodness, this, what is this? And so you take this out and you do this DVT likely or unlikely along with their alternative diagnosis. And if they score two or more, they really should have further testing. And we tend to not want to send them for further testing. Oh, now they've got to go somewhere else and have this. Yeah. That's why I'm saying, you know, in the long run, if the further testing, if we were doing this, or if we had it right next door to us at the moment, I mean, this is going to save us in the long run is if these compression ultrasounds can be done more expediently. 
then you're going to have your answer right away. This is why people, oh, well, maybe they don't have a clot. Let's just kind yeah. of ignore it because it takes so much to send them for a compression ultrasound. Yeah. yeah, that'd be awesome if we could do that. And and again, like you said, this is an easy thing to, not to the compression ultrasound. That's what we, I would love to get to that point, but this Wells criteria is very straightforward. It's not like it's pages. I mean, it's just quick, super simple short. questions. Yeah, super short. And if they score higher or equal to or higher, then it is very likely that there could be a DBT. I tell yeah. everyone to put it on a typed card and laminate it and keep it with you. Yeah. And just yeah, tape it, it to your clipboard. Yes. Or attach <laughs> it to your badge. <laughs> Do you have these? <laughs> our, our young folks, it has to be on their phones. So. I was gonna say, I'm oh, gonna yeah, QR it's gotta code. be on your phone. <laughs> screenshot it, screenshot it from the pocket guide. It'll be right there. Ellen, that, Ellen, that'll be you, in the app. <laughs> you lost them, you lost them at laminate. <laughs> That's in the app to be, okay? Uh, <laughs> I had overhead projector flashbacks right there. <laughs> well, you may laugh, but you should see our badges in acute care. We have like 10 laminated cards oh, in the badge. Yeah. You just pull it out there and look at it that fast. It's faster than looking it up on your iPhone. Yeah, true. <laughs> Number six, establish the likelihood of an upper extremity DVT when symptoms yeah. persist. So as you go through the document, you'll notice that in a lot of places we pull these apart because they are different and upper extremity does have its own likelihood assessment. So if you encounter signs and symptoms of a clot in the upper extremity, the Wells has not been validated for upper extremity DVT. So the Wells is appropriate for lower extremity DVT. When you get to the upper extremity, the recommendation is the Constance criterion, which is actually even shorter than the Wells, just as a plug for people to use it. Um, but it's very specific to the risk factors that lead to upper extremity clot. So when you see an upper extremity, the Constance criterion, it's looking at, you know, one of the big, huge causes that we see that's so common now are these central lines that you mentioned earlier. And people right. are going home more likely with central lines because they're trying to get them out of the hospital faster and using it to do long-term drug delivery. So um, that's the assessment tool for when you see upper extremity symptoms. I will put a note on this, that this now we're into the lower quality research. So the evidence quality here isn't as strong. So our recommendations is only a moderate simply because the evidence isn't yet been, you know, hasn't been out there yet to support it. Yep. But as you pointed out, we are starting to see more of these opportunity DBTs. um, Yes. The frequency is increasing for sure. Yeah. yeah. And then there's a wicked com. Go ahead. Is there a higher risk of PE with an opportunity DBT? Do we know that? No, low risk. Low yeah. risk. Okay. And in they're much smaller too. Because when you think about the diameter of the blood yeah. vessels, the veins in your leg are large than the veins in your arm. So it can you kind of start to think a little bit like that below the knee clot in an arm. We're talking about a similar similar size or even smaller yet, depending on where you're in the leg. I think we actually even talk about risk for upper extremity DVT. Um, is they typically have a diagnosis of cancer in about 40 or 50% of the patients. That was exactly what I was about. I was gonna say there's this wicked combination because it's the cancer patients that are often getting these central lines. The central lines, yeah. Yep. So it's this perfect storm that they're getting the line, which disrupts the the vascular wall because the line is, uh, you know, scrapes and moves in there. um, And then they have cancer as this hypercoagulable state. Okay. Just say that, you know, in our, a lot of the people listen to our podcast might 
kind of thinking about throwers and thoracic outlet syndrome and Paget Schroeder disease, that kind of thing. I mean, there's, you know, somewhat of a, um, a common thing to see perhaps mm-hmm. in a thrower, but. Okay. Number seven, seems like a really big one. Establish the likelihood of a PE when a patient presents with symptoms. Yeah. Um, <laughs> seems like a good one. <laughs> seems like that. I think strong. we can skip this one. I think we can skip this one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no so big this deal. is the one. There were actually a couple of um, risk assessment tools or likely tools. Um, the Wells criteria for PE and the um, the Geneva, and um, we actually chose the Geneva because it required less, I think, lab chart review than the. Um, the wells. So, uh, you know, either one of them could be used. There's also a couple of others that we mentioned that can be used, but establishing the likelihood. And, and so the symptoms of, uh, feeling lightheaded or noticing that they are hypotensive tachycardic heart rate greater than 100, uh, complaining of shortness of breath can be at rest or on exertion, uh, feeling chest pain when they take a deep breath, Um, these are some of the symptoms you want to watch for, um, definitely presyncope and syncope are huge signs, but you'd rather catch it before then. Um, and these are people that you should act quickly. And there is level one evidence that shows that identifying this, um, is, uh, you know, there's level one evidence to say you should be doing this to identify PE. And there is uh, level one evidence that this is a critical situation if they're having these symptoms. So if they have those symptoms, the simplified Geneva, it seems great because it's all just a one point scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if they're, if they have those symptoms, they're over 65, they've already got one point. If they've had a previous DVT or PE, they get a point. If they've had surgery where they are under anesthesia or fracture within a month, they have a point. If they have a malignant condition, um, unilateral lower limb pain, hemoptysis, I can't say that right. Hemoptysis, um, that's pretty good. Hemoptysis, <laughs> thank you. It's kind of like saying your last name. Um, <laughs> heart rate between 75 to 94 beats per minute or greater than 95 beats per minute. Um, wait, greater than 95 beats per minute, right? Yes. Greater than it comes Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then pain on uh, lower limb DVT palpation and unilateral edema. Each one of those could be a point. So if they have those symptoms, um, if they have zero to three, it's low probability. Uh, four to ten is intermediate. And wait, am I looking at that? You're right? in the original no, the simplified, so the simplified, yeah, the simplified yeah. version. Low probability simplified. is zero to one. Intermediate would be two to four. And greater than five, they're at, at high risk of a PE. Right. And so these are people that you don't just say, you should call your doctor. These are people that should go to the ER or actually, um, I mean, that would be the preferable situation. Um, But you don't just say, well, you should go to the ER. These are people you march over the ER, you call or whatever, because this is a a life saving situation. And, And I actually have known of a couple of people who have not listened to the recommendations and um, very poor outcomes. So this is a life uh, lesson right here. And, and we should be able to identify these high-risk people. Okay. Strong you, evidence. Is it a scenario where you think... Sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. 
I was just going to say, I mean, it's, do you think it rises to the level of call 911? If yes. like, say you have a person that's like, ah, I don't want to go to this. And you're like, ah, no, you have to. Well, one of the things is, is I would call their doctor. Yeah. And let, the, so, so then you're making it more of a team decision. Mm -hmm. So you call the doctor with an emergent call and say, I have your patient here. I think they're, um, they have, they're likely PE. Um, I've suggested they go to the ER and then you let the doctor also give their input. So it, it's kind of a way to play nice in the sandbox. There you go. Yeah. Then the, oh, I tell me, like something I always tell my students is like the worse the outcome that you're scared of, the more it's okay to overreact. So like yeah. Ellen's describing the ideal situation, but if you encounter this and you panic, 911 is appropriate because the outcome is that bad. So if you have the, the time, the wherewithal, the ability, you know, make it a team effort and, you know, articulate all the things that's going on to the patient, but when in doubt, 911, because it's life or death. Yeah. Yes. You don't want them to drive to the ER when they're at this high risk too. Yeah. I wouldn't have the patient drive themselves personally, but it would, it would all, you know, it's also patient dependent, no, so scenario dependent. Yeah. Well, I don't want to tell you, but I did review a legal case. <laughs> of one who was That's why I asked the question. <laughs> Honestly. I reviewed a legal case of someone who the therapist said um, they should go back to their doctor. And that's all they said. And the mm. person didn't go back to the doctor, didn't go to the ER and was brought to the ambulance brought to the ER in an ambulance with a bad outcome later. Wow. Yeah. 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 So th that's why I'm saying I I've seen this you know, as far as it goes. So I guess anecdotally, but the evidence does say if you have, if you do not pass these um, likelihood, um, you know, quizzes that we have here, our Geneva and our simplified Geneva, if um, they show likelihood, then you should listen to that because there is strong evidence behind these tools. Yeah. And these are validated measures. Uh, yeah. It's not, it's not a hunch. It's not, you know, this, right. is, this yeah. is why we use these to give you choices to help yeah. you with your decision-making. And to give you the language on the phone call with the doc, that it's not your hunch that they might Absolutely. dismiss you, but yeah. here's the score on the Geneva. I like did that, the Geneva. Is, that is a language that goes, I mean, this is straight from the chest physicians guidelines themselves. So, and the European society of cardiology, I think is what recommended this scale. So yes. it gives us a common language. It's validating your gut. It's quantifying yeah. your gut. And it, it was in this area with pulmonary embolism that we utilize the European society of cardiology physicians. Um, that actually had written their guidelines. They actually reviewed our guidelines. Mm -hmm. Wow. And, um, they, awesome. it was fantastic. It was fantastic. They said, awesome. they said they learned things from our guidelines, but they were so awesome. overwhelmingly helpful. Mm -hmm. And, and we really wanted their input because PE is much more medical than lower extremity DVT and upper extremity DVT. And we really wanted their medical input. Mm -hmm. And um, so we, we did have them review it. They gave us great feedback at, um, in a lot of the terminology. Mm -hmm. and, um, they were so impressed with what we were doing to try and help physical therapists. We, yeah. Kudos cool, to you guys. Cool connection. Yeah. It's awesome. That's so cool. You were a great connection. Well, just to lighten it up here. One time I was working at the Center for the Intrepid, <laughs> my, my head and face started to just swell for no reason. Right. All I had was coffee that morning and, and my my 
PTA came in. He's like, dude, what is going on with your lips? They were like getting huge, right? And I was like, what? I looked in the mirror. Remember Fletch? I think it was Fletch where his he got a bee sting and his whole head swell. It was Will Smith. Um, so anyways, we had a doctor there at our at our place. And so he's like, yeah, you got to go to the ER, man, figure this out. And he's like, just walk over there to the hospital, which is like a quarter mile away. I made it like halfway through the parking lot and almost passed out because my throat started to swell up too. <laughs> like, yeah. So walk I, I finally, over. yeah, walk over. Well, I, I, it was just starting to swell like really crazy. So anyways, I thought I was oh, going to be taken out by my swollen face. And I went to the ER. They gave me a Benadryl drip. Dude, right. if you ever get that, you're, you're, you're not going to wake up for like two days. You're sleep I mean, for days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I asked them why did what did anything happen there? And they're like at the ER, like, I don't know. Like they said every about once a month we just get a swollen head like yours. <laughs> 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 they made me carry an EpiPen. I'm supposed to carry it all the time. And I, I oh my word. That's oh, yeah. gotta be regional. There has to be something in your air. So I don't think I ERs across the country are getting swollen what? heads at that no. frequency. That's what I don't know. He probably just wanted to make me feel good because they didn't. Or their water. Or their yeah. Something. No, that's not normal. So, yeah. Don't just send your patients, tell them to go to the ER. Make sure no, something safe. like that can go into asthma right away. Yeah. I would never tell them yeah. to walk. Oh my gosh. Maybe our, our, our doc and I had a contentious relationship at our place. So maybe he was trying to get rid of me. Trying to get rid of (laughs) Number eight, assess the medical intervention. So, and that's basically, uh, you're trying to see, um, you know, what are they doing for it as far as that goes? So after the diagnosis, you need to see what, what they have done to address the clot and decrease the risks. And, um, so uh, that's where that came from. We, we actually broke that apart from our, our first version of the guidelines um, because we put that in with the pharmacologic. And this time we, we took it out and we said, assess the medical and then assess the pharmacologic. As because there's so many, because there's so many that aren't getting pharmacological. So it was kind of confusing for therapists when assessing the medical was tied to the farm. It's like, well, what do we do if they didn't prescribe any meds? So that's where it got pulled apart. So just check what they did first and then go on to the next statement to see what your next decision is. And the primary anticoagulant that we will see a patient on, in your opinion? In orthopedic setting, you'll probably see them on the direct oral anticoagulants. That would be Eliquis or um, Xarelto used to be used more. Um, So the... The ending, Aban, is the name like Rivaroxaban, Apixaban. Um, those are the drugs that are the direct oral anticoagulants. There's no medical screening pharmacologic uh, medical screening for the pharmacology. So uh, for the direct oral anticoagulants, whereas if they're on something like warfarin, Coumadin, they need to have their INR checked, but yeah, not yeah. when you're on these direct oral anticoagulants. And so the orthopedists actually have guidelines for um, anticoagulation, and this is their number one drug that they use. Okay. And if they can't take a drug, there could be a filter put in? Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) That used to be be true. That used to be true. It used to be true. That's one of the action statements. Um, Typically now the filters are only used very short term. Okay. So, um, but if they can't take that anticoagulant, they may take another anticoagulant, such as Lovenox, which are the shots. Um, and those are your typical drugs that are being used. Or if it's below the knee, they might opt for none 
is it right. also yeah. a possibility? Right. And if they are on one, there is potential for bleeds. So if you guys did point out with folks that might be a fall risk, be well aware of this. Yep. And, and watch for the signs of increased bleeding, such as they bruise too fast. I mean, these are things to bring up to the physicians if they're bruising too much. Um, but uh, most of them do okay on these anticoagulants. It's when they're on there a long term. And we've seen that more with people who have a high risk for clots all the time. They keep them mm -hmm. on long, -ter long term, or if they have atrial fibrillation and they're on these long term, then we start to see a lot of bruising of the extremities over a you know period of time because they're on them for so long. With blood flow restriction, that's a question we do get when these people are on anticoags. Is, is the tourniquet going to increase you know bruising and, and any potential vascular or bleeding type issue, which we haven't mm -hmm. seen. Um, yeah, and I didn't see that talked about much in the literature around that topic, bruising specifically. With tourniquet use. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Number nine, confirm the pharmacological management. So again, what medications are they taking? And then as we said earlier, um, have they switched their medications? So make sure you know when they're lowering their dosage or changing their uh, medicine, their pharmacologic management. Um, these are very important key points to know. Um, so uh, if they lower the dosage or if they switch to aspirin or they take them off of it all altogether, normally they're on these medications for three months. But I do know that orthopedists like to lower the dosage and take them off of it faster. Yeah. So in your population, I would make sure that I know when they're coming off the medication or when they're being switched to aspirin, if that's the case. Okay. And a little bit of the detail here, kind of going back to what you said, if you are able to see an INR, if their INR is really high, like greater than four, then exercise might be something that was a concern. Well, let me see exactly where it was. Actually greater like than it, five. five. Um, greater than five. Okay. An INR so greater than five. That doesn't mean contraindication to mobility um, because we do see that sometimes in patients that have cancer, mm -hmm. that their INRs tend to um, be elevated in some cases. So it's not an absolute contraindication. It is a discussion with the medical community if it's that high. Um, but an, um, typically they're not having their INRs checked more than 90, every 90 days. So it's okay. not something you would know right away if they're not right. being followed for 90 days. But these typical INRs, it might be between, you know, like above two, two to four or something, you know, two we're, lo we're looking at like resistance exercise, blood flow restriction, things like that. That's not a contraindication. Not a contraindication. Yep. And, and okay. the, the therapeutic goal is two to three. So that's actually the goal. That's what they're trying that's to the get goal. the patients. Yeah. Yeah. But just, you know, mobility is good, but also resistance exercise is fine. Yes. Okay. Then number 10, mobilize the patients with lower extremity DVT when the therapeutic level of anticoag is achieved. So, And so that's why you want to know what drug they're on because there's different therapeutic levels. So um, the therapeutic level for the, um, uh, the low, low molecular weight heparin would be three to five hours where the direct oral anticoagulant that's like in Eliquis and all those, that would be two to three hours. And then the other one is heparin. So we don't use heparin on the outpatient basis. So that wouldn't be for your people, but in the hospital, we use heparin 
for the individuals who have a poor renal function. Uh, so if they can't get rid of the drug because their kidneys are um, dysfunctional, then they'll keep the drug in and they'll have too much drug in the system. So they therefore use very lower, um, lower dose kind of anticoagulant that takes a lot longer to reach that therapeutic level. So if they're on heparin, that's why we say 24 hours minimal before we get them up to mobilize because they're on a very slow acting anticoagulant because of their kidneys. Interesting. Okay. And number 11 basically is the same thing, but for the upper extremity, once they hit exactly. that therapeutic level, get moving. And I, and I, I think the overarching you know, theme of this is once they hit a therapeutic level on their anticoag, get these people moving where yeah. a lot of us have been afraid. They got a clot. Oh my God, I'm not moving. If they're on anticoag, you guys are like, get them going, go, go, go. Mobility and is good. Keep in mind this, this one, 11, there's very little evidence. It was expert yeah. opinion. There is really nothing out there. So if somebody wants to do some studies, this would be great. Upper extremity, man. Because Upper extremity needs a better, it needs a better Upper marketing extremity. team. No one cares yeah. about the arms. They need the team. Yeah. <laughs> but lower okay. extremity was strong yeah. evidence. Yes. Yes. It was like, definitely get them moving. Get them moving, which again, a lot of people might not always think. Number 12, I think it's an interesting one. Do not routinely recommend mechanical compression for people with a new DVT. Yeah, this is one of the few places where we actually had to make a switch from the original CPG in 2016, where there was a recommendation to use compression when there was an active clot. And then in the time between that publication and now, there were new studies that came out that really did not show any added benefit to the patient. So um, the language here was chosen very carefully that we shouldn't just routinely recommend. It doesn't mean that it's not something that per person could use if they thought it was appropriate or the patient really wanted it, but it's not appropriate that when you see a clot, you're like, compression's the thing to do. Compression's going to help you because there's no evidence or there is not enough evidence to support that. So compression is not a go-to treatment when someone has a new active clot. Um, it could be some, some patients find pain relief from compression. So if there's a benefit to the patient, it's not something you couldn't use. Um, but it doesn't have enough of a benefit that we should be telling every patient to use it. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't, okay. wasn't there some thought that that might actually like the compression might reduce the post thrombotic syndrome risk? I think I recall maybe yes. hearing that or. Yeah. So that gets to the timeline of where you are. So mm -hmm. the original recommendation was an acute clot that the compression would actually help you break the clot down faster. I don't know if that's what the language was, but it was actually thought of as like a treatment for the clot that it would help okay. you with an acute clot. Um, compression is a tool that will help patients who have symptoms of, like post-thrombotic syndrome that comes near the end of the document. That compression is recommended because that's a syndrome where you you've scarred off the clot and you have poor venous flow. So the compression actually helps to relieve some of the symptoms of post-thrombotic syndrome. So that's just all on the timeline. That's in someone who's in a chronic state that's suffering from chronic consequences of the clot, appropriate to use compression. Um, someone with a brand new active clot in their body, compression doesn't, because there's not evidence to show that will help you break the clot down any faster. Got it. But it does help them when they have PTS a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And so that it helps them with their gait and their pain and their swelling. So they're just different situations. So we just mm -hmm. had to make this 
do not routinely recommend. Yeah. And us dummy orthos, tet hoes are the same as compression to us, but that's a totally different <laughs> thing. Not... Two different things. Yeah. No, 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 no. You want a little right. bit more compression. Yep. Yep. <laughs> compression stocking versus, yeah, like yeah. pneumatic yeah. compression so, where you're actually being squeezed from the outside. Yes. If someone has PTS, get them real compression, not a tet hose that you go pull off your shelf. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Number 13, I think, is very straightforward. If they do get an IVC filter in place, once it's once it's stable, surgically, everything, get them moving. Yeah, and in this paragraph um, underneath it, that's where they actually talk about that um, IVC filters are not routinely used. They're used for short-term, and that's key to understand because they're not really using long-term anymore. And just really quickly, so all your listeners know what that is, it's like a little cage that just goes in the inferior vena cava, which is why it's like, do whatever you want with this patient, because that little cage is between the veins and the lungs. So if you do throw a clot, it'll get caught in the cage. It's just they cause so many long-term problems that it sounds like a great thing, but when they were leaving these inpatients, they were causing bigger problems for patients, so not being used as much. But that's they, why you can just mobilize a patient if they have it. Because if they throw the clot, it'll get caught in the cage. The, the problem was in these people, they kept them in long time. The clots kept forming on this cage. And then oh. it was major clot of the yeah, best. Just of the inferior vena cava. Flow. Ah, <laughs> be a problem. Interesting. Yeah. One of our, one of our cadavers in PT school had one. I remember. Oh, that. cool. Yeah. I love when you, know, you when find stuff a, in the cadaver. I know when you're doing <laughs> cadavers. Like, oh my God, what is this? Look, I found something. Hey, okay. Cool. Hang on. I got the trump card here, I think, Johnny. <laughs> the cadaver that I dissected in PT school yeah. had breast implants. Oh, we had oh. That no, we had oh, that. Yeah, we had that. yeah, yeah. Come on. You had that I also? Swear to God. Yeah. We yeah. weren't in PT school together. <laughs> Two years ago. I thought I was the yeah. only one. Why? Two years I was, ago, I was, I was impressed. Did you hear me? I was impressed. I got a pacemaker. I never got the breast implants, but my, my, we, two years ago, we were dissecting one and it had a pacemaker and, um, nice. the pacemaker wasn't fully off. Dr. Hilligus, what is this? <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And we had to take up, uh, magnet just to put over it to stop it <laughs> uh, really that's crazy interesting yeah okay number 14 if they don't if they can't take anticoags or they don't have a filter talk to the medical team if they have a dvt to about what you can do right, right. and typically if it's below the knee you can probably mobilize them if it's more proximal that's a that's a real decision making tree there i guess mm -hmm. right okay number 15 Mobilize a patient with a non-massive low-risk PE when the therapeutic level of anticoagulation is achieved? So, so 15 and 16 kind of go together. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's new terminology for physical therapists. Most physical therapists don't understand that you can have different variations in PEs. And so the non-massive um, means that they're just basically like a lower extremity DVT. You treat them almost the same as far as medication and when to mobilize, because these people don't, it's a small clot and they don't have any abnormal heart rate, blood pressure. They're not a high risk for mortality. So that's, that's the 15, that's the non-massive. 
And so one of the things it's, it's learning the terminology in this guideline that PEs can be non-massive, submassive, and massive. Okay. And that's, that's a key thing to take away from these guidelines. Um, it's the submassive and the massive that have bad outcomes. And so um, the non-massive, they're a lower risk. And so um, there are different um, uh, action statements based on the definition and the, the uh, determination if they're low risk. And we, we actually took a um, table on, um, from the European Society of Cardiology um, that talks about mortality risk and um, high versus intermediate versus low risk. Um, and, and the, the uh, Europeans use high, intermediate, and low. The Americans use massive, submassive, and non-massive. So we put the terminology in there for people to understand it. It's an American guideline. So we used massive, submassive, and non-massive as our terminology, but we also included the European terminology. And so the massive, we don't touch. Yeah. Um, the submassive, the intermediate high risk, we can touch if they have been treated and they're hemodynamically stable. And the non-massive are the ones that we can treat like a lower extremity DVT. So to really understand these two action statements, 15 and 16, you really need to understand the terminology um, and look through the tables that we have because most PTs don't really understand this level of um, acuity in a pulmonary. Yeah. And hemodynamically unstable, they're typically hypertensive, increased heart hypo. rate. Is that hypo? Hypo, hypo. That's what I'm saying. Hypotensive, tachycardic. Um, yes, and and just very very unstable. Okay. <clears throat> and they may they typically have elevated enzymes that are saying that their heart's damaged. That's a cardiac troponin. Um, and typically they have right ventricular dysfunction because there's a lot of pressure in the pulmonary artery, putting pressure onto the right heart. And the right heart is not like the left heart. It fails easily because the muscle is very little compared to the left heart. So the right heart can't huh. take the pressure that the PE is putting on it. And so that's where we're talking about a really unstable. They'll have low pressures, high heart rates, um, elevated troponins, which are the enzymes released from the heart saying there's damage. So um, in our action statement 16, we actually talk about, you really wanna evaluate the right heart. So you go to the echocardiogram to see what they're saying the right heart's doing. And if there's right heart involvement, um, then that's a person that needs to be um, possibly held a little bit longer until they're more stable. All right. I just definitely learned something new. I always thought my right heart was the strongest part of my heart. <laughs> no, your oh. left heart is this. The <laughs> most Larry Cahalan is going to be so disappointed in me. <laughs> the right heart just can't take the pressures. The left yeah. heart has to deal with the rest of the body. And so it's used to pressure. <laughs> the right heart is not used to pressure. So that's, that's the key thing in number 16. You want to actually go to the echocardiogram and look up how much involvement of the right heart before you start mobilizing these patients and then talk with the team um, because right heart involvement means that the patient isn't going to do very well. Got it. 
Number 17 is interesting because it's um, refer the patient back for medical reevaluation re if they are showing no improvement in signs and symptoms after one to two weeks. So you should see improvement pretty quickly, typically. Right. And this is, again, this is 17 is really for your population of PTs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's based on the fact that you really need to not just rely on previous um, testing, such as a, a negative compression ultrasound, um, and the patient's not doing better, swelling still there, gates may be off, they're still having pain, no improvement. Um, this is where we need to send them back. They may need reevaluation with another compression ultrasound that maybe the first one really didn't pick it up and that they were less active and the clot grew. Yeah. Yep. Don't just assume that because they're on medications, it's doing the job. If you are seeing something get worse, refer them back. Perfect. Yeah. And you guys pointed out in this statement that VTE symptoms, you know, after something like a total hip are about almost 30 days out or when you see it, or is when we're, we're going to have them <laughs> or 17 days after a total knee is kind of when you start to see these symptoms. So this, this is in our wheelhouse. Okay. Number 18, refer patients for medical management of the long-term consequences of a VTE. And again, that's because um, there are some people that are having recurrent VTE um, and are at risk for recurrent VTE. And usually that's coagulopathies um, and also those that have um, uh, cancer diagnoses, et cetera, that maybe three to six months is not good enough. Um, so uh, that's one of the things. And then the other thing is, is if they're having post-traumatic, uh, Oh, yeah, post-thrombotic, post-thrombotic, post not PTS, post-traumatic, but post-thrombotic syndrome, or if they're showing CTEF, um, that we should be sending them back to having these things evaluated and whether there's better treatment now. And that leads into 19. This is when you would recommend mechanical compression if they're showing signs or symptoms of PTS. So that right. is the time to get that. Exactly right. So that can actually help with the symptoms of post-thrombotic syndrome where there's not evidence to support that it actually helps to treat an acute clot. And you guys, I, I like how you, you didn't mention, cause it, you, you see compression recommended, not recommended, recommended. And then y'all <laughs> point out, <laughs> but you do point out that compression is mentioned in three different um, KASs here. Mm -hmm. It should be recommended for prevention. Um, right. Exactly. Does not have to be used in an active first time DVT. Correct. It should be recommended with PTS. Exactly right. right. You nailed it. You're ready. You it. <laughs> and compression isn't Ted Hose. It's not, it's beyond Ted Hose. Not Ted Hose. <laughs> we made it through all of these KASs. It's yeah, great. when you said you were going to read them all, I didn't know if you'd get there. I, I know. I told you guys about an hour or we're, we're pushing two hours. Sorry. Yeah, no. <laughs> Do you have an editing room for this podcast? <laughs> we might have to break it in two, but it's Good. this is information that I think is so valuable. It's so important. Yeah. And so, because everyone's, if they made it this far into it, it's going to be, what are your thoughts with blood flow restriction? Um, you know, we, we go deep into, we don't think it will produce a clot. There is some short-term stasis, obviously, when you have it on, but what, but what do you guys think with blood flow restriction from all this different stuff? Yeah, some things to consider, you know, first of all, a lot of the studies um, that have looked at blood flow restriction have such 
strict inclusion criteria, exclusion criteria that you don't get a lot of the patients that we've been kind of going on and on mm -hmm. about that have these risk factors because they're usually excluded. So our study doesn't get messed up and to have the highest safety of their study. So it really limits the findings when you say it hasn't caused clots or it has no no potential because the studies that have been done excluded a lot of the higher risk. So with that knowledge, the same things that we're applying to your general population apply here. If they have a high risk for a clot, the evidence has not yet been to show whether it's safe or not. So your clinical judgment's really important, how many risk factors they have. If they've had a previous clot, that would be a big reason to start to assess what, does, what is this intervention giving me? And is there some other way that I can get the same results? Is there a reason they can't do high load resistance training? Because mm -hmm. you guys would know this better than me, but correct me if I'm wrong, you can get the same effect. If it's mm -hmm. all about you know protecting the tendon and the tensile strength around the structures, then you really wanna go blood flow restriction, look at the whole patient and see what their risk factors are. Because I don't think the evidence is great. There's places to look that can give you a lot of confidence. Um, places like, surgical occlusion is very long-term where blood is being mm -hmm. occluded at a much higher um, occlusion pressure than you would do in blood flow restriction. And there isn't a huge problem with it. I looked through the um, ischemic preconditioning literature. I didn't know how much you guys mm -hmm. were looking at that. It's a different a model, but it's an occlusion model and there's not a high incidence of DVT and they're doing super high risk patients. Yeah, with 100%. That. That, a lot of very occlusion too. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Really yeah. good point with very high risk patients, patients that are, you know, heart failure and heart hemorrhagic failure. risk. And um, so that literature I thought should give you a lot of confidence in the work that you're doing because it's a different mm -hmm. model, but a very similar kind of question. Um, you mentioned the um, bond paper. I feel like that was kind of the best overarching paper I found still that they basically kind of looked over the literature and said, there's not enough really to say yes or no, but there's not anything that's showing that this wider band partially occluded should increase the risk. There were a few studies yeah. that actually looked at like coagulation activation, which was not, there's a systematic review in 2019 that showed it did not increase the coagulability of the blood, which is again, another like helpful feather in your cap of decision-making. Um, there isn't anything that um, makes you think that the compression itself is making the blood become more coagulable, at least for that, right. what that study found. We even see things like TPA go up. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, that yeah, yeah. Beneficial. I saw that, that yeah. actually have a beneficial effect. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the one we get all the time and, you know, we don't have the studies yet is okay. They have a, a clot. They're at a therapeutic level on their anticoagulants. Are they safe to do something like blood flow restriction? And, and we put a disclaimer: this is not medical advice out there. Yeah. Um, but that—that's the whole decision tree type thing. Like you said, can they do heavy load? Sure. It's probably putting as much stress on the vascular system if they're doing heavy load as if you're using a tourniquet. The biggest difference is that you get this big post occlusion hyperemic effect. Big perfusion mm -hmm. when you release it, and when you have a sudden change in flow that can mm -hmm. have a higher amount of shear stress on the surface of that clot. I mean, I don't know that it's higher than high load training that you're doing, but it's, it's something to keep in mind that that is, mm -hmm. if you're thinking about dislodging a clot, and since the studies aren't yet there to show whether this happens or not, that's the thing that gives me pause is completely occluding it and then suddenly having a rush of blood flow go past that clot versus 
the gradual increase in flow that happens when you do a warm-up activity and then you have a sustained activity and then you go down, there isn't the, as much of a sudden change. Certainly if you guys are doing high load and you're getting, you know, to a mass, like a, a maximal contraction, you're getting occlusion during that max yeah. contraction and it's being released. Right. Yeah. Um, but that's a much shorter because it's a pumping than the post occlusion perfusion. So that would be my biggest cause for concern. Ellen, you could jump in here. Um, well, and I agree that's a concern, but then the other thing that says to me is that this drug is on board and it's, it's, you know, it's going after the floaters. So if something dislodged and something's floating, you've got a therapy in there that's going after the floating. Again, there's no evidence. Mm -hmm. But I, I tend to believe that if there's good anticoagulation on board, you know, as far as that goes, then I I don't I don't know that I would have trouble with it with the with the big rush of the hyperemia. Mm -hmm. But well, and I think there's and great, there's ways we can it's, it's, manipulate the parameters. I think the, the whole case would be, you know, it would be depending yeah. on how, how, is yeah. this the first time ever DVT? Yeah. Where, where in the leg? I mean, the further down the leg, the less and less and less concern you should have. Cause even if you do yeah. dislodge it, it's not, this is, you're not entering a life-threatening emergency. Yeah. 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 It, as of now, we have it as a contra um, just because we don't know. So I was hoping you guys would take people with clots and start doing BFR with them and see if they dislodge or not. Um, <laughs> Notice I'm stuff. very apprehensive to be recorded saying that. <laughs> I would have and to then, check with my insurance company. Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like I said, I, you know, I, I think these below the knee ones, um, you know, if it, and, and again, it's like, well, what's the point, but it, it, we usually get it. It's like a high end athlete, you know, or a, a pro athlete or something like that. It's who's, who's going to be non-weight brain for like eight weeks. They had a, a really big procedure done and they're just losing muscle. Mass. On a knee them, scooter. Yeah, yeah. Not on a knee scooter, but to them, that's a big deal. They're like, I, I want to try and preserve this because it's you know well time is tissue this, yeah they're losing yeah, it daily yeah. and yeah yeah oh i love that i've never heard time is tissue oh yeah tissue. beautiful okay <laughs> got a new title thanks for the second half of the day right there <laughs> oh. it's like when they dissolve the clots in the heart time is tissue it's just like yeah. a stroke mm -hmm. yeah. in the opposite yeah. direction yeah. Yeah. time is tissue in the sense of tissue that have clots there perfect well, that was great clarification. You, you're you're where we are on that. So thanks for this. Thanks so much again, you guys, for the effort you put into not only this massive Seriously. long podcast, but this this endeavor of the CPG. It's it's fantastic and appreciate oh, thanks. it. Thanks. Yeah, thanks we feel really proud that it's out there. Yeah, thanks for promoting this. People need to know more and more because it's not something you pick up and read every day. <laughs> And we love your audience because when we wrote this, we, uh, we, how do we get this into the eyes of our outpatient therapists? This isn't, there's a lot of acute care stuff in the document, but this is a huge, you know, it's happening in the outpatient clinics and more and more as people, patients are getting sent home with shorter times in the hospital stay. So I'm thrilled that your audience um, may be listening. Maybe not anymore since we're at hour two, <laughs> yeah, but no, they will. Uh, they will. They will. Yeah. All those knee All scooters. Well. Yeah. Yeah. We're going yeah, everybody's going to freak you out now that these scooter comes in. <laughs> yeah. Well, for every minute you're in the scooter, you got to do like 10 heel raises. <laughs> there we go. Exactly. There we go. Well, thanks so much, you guys. Appreciate Thank your you. time. Thanks for All having right. us.
All right. Take care. You too. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PTs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com. One last thing before we get out of here. First, want to say a sincere thank you for listening all the way through. But also wanted to remind you that this podcast should not be considered medical advice. It is strictly entertainment. It's a way for us to try to keep up with what is ongoing within the BFR world. If you require some sort of medical attention, medical advice, please seek that from a licensed individual within your state. Thanks, and we'll talk to you soon.